Counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week it's brought us to Donegal. And this week's question is, should Donegal have universal basic income? Ooh, I can't wait to find out. I know what I think. Do you know what you think? I think I know what I think. Oh my God, I can't wait to see what happens at the end. The week that was... Uh, Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his cell in New York, um, bringing something of an end to what has been a really incredible, sensational um, few months, I suppose, with regards to him being arrested on charges of um, sex sex trafficking and all of the high profile names linked to him. And I suppose what is devastating for the victims is that, you know, he'll never uh, be tried. But at the same time, there does seem to be that this is not going to go away. 100%. The prosecutor has set, has made a, um, a speech about how that the fact that they're going to keep investigating and they're, they're invested in it. And there's obviously they're going to go after the people who are associated with him. So it's definitely not the end of this. And the attorney general has come out in support of that as well. And they are um, the people who run the prison are actually under the Department of Justice. So they're putting a big scale investigation into that, even though it's on his watch so there's, there's definitely not the end of this along with all of the other name like all the stuff that was coming out about the allegations against um, Prince Andrew and um, there was Bill a raid Kenton. and there was a raid on um, Epstein's uh, private island as well and I was reading a piece about that that said actually that they'll be able to gather more evidence personal evidence from his private residences now that he's dead because the only person who can basically kind of um, oppose that is the person you're trying to gather evidence from so it might provide for um, an opportunity to to actually um, uh, gather more evidence with that but that I mean completely sensational and obviously immediately you know Twitter was overtaken with, with various conspiracy theories and people wondering if you know this very very high profile person who has extraordinary um, large uh, connections uh, of other high-profile people is then found dead in a cell. I mean, it's obvious that people are going to start jumping to, to different conclusions. But if about the it. fact that maybe it, the investigation can go further with him dead, does that not turn it back on its head that it wasn't a, like? Obviously, yeah, I mean, we'll never. It's he, very hard. He's to find the person out. who yeah. who knows the the who has all of the shit on people. So if he's out of the picture, um, obviously he can't tell. You know. But if he has it in computers and mm. whether he does or proof, not, yeah, I yeah, suppose yeah. we're going to see as the yeah. investigation rolls. We, what have you got here now, Andre, about more Airbnb apartment vibes this in town? This is actually great news. And it is so exciting to see something like this. On board, Panala denied permission to change six apartments to Airbnb style lettings on Clarendon Street. Um, as I said, granting permission will be contrary to the city development plan. Now, Friends First are coming back on that and saying that they need places for tourists to stay. Surprise, surprise. But it's actually really good, even though it is only six apartments, to hear that uh, uh, permission is being changed. So great stuff to hear from on board Panala, Brilliant. to be honest. Um, we had... The HSE have started talks to carry out drug testing at festivals. Um, this is after we saw the death of a 19-year-old boy um, at Independence. Um, and I think this is a really great move. And how it's going to work is, is up in the air. So if it will be off-site, so you, you can get your drugs tested beforehand or and then go to the festival. Or if it's a case of doing it on drugs that have been seized by the guards. Or if it's a case of having a drug amnesty where you put drugs in a bin, I would 
be intrigued to see how that work. Why would people put drugs in a bin? But obviously it's worked in Holland. Um, whereas in Spain and Portugal, they have testing sites where you can go up and get your drugs tested. But um, obviously the word on the street is that taking drugs is never safe, so don't do it. But it just adds an extra level of security, I suppose, to it. Mm-hmm. The more you know, the more you know. The more you know. Uh, 650 undocumented uh, people were arrested in Mississippi and taken into custody, leaving their children alone. Um, And that came in at the same time as the public charge rule is being rolled out by the Trump administration. Um, And the public charge rule is this um, new legislation that takes away... It it doesn't take away, so it means that... um, undocumented people who are waiting to get their green card or their visas who are getting um, uh, support from the government will be uh, worried about taking the support because it may lead to them not getting their green card. So it's a way to kind of stop um, immigration. So even the push has always been on illegal immigration as being a bad thing, but now the um, administration are pushing against even legal uh, immigration, which is really getting worrying of how it's turning into such a closed door society. Yeah, it's uh, in bits. I've actually find it hard to even read stuff about American uh, news stories at the moment because it's just like every time you, you know, look at the New York Times, it's like rolling back protections on endangered species, children crying at the Mm. board. I mean, it's just the absolute pits. Um, In Hong Kong, meanwhile, uh, there are uh, protests still ongoing there. I think it's the 10th or, or going into the 11th week um, and the latest part has been protesters gathering in the airport um, to and shutting down flights. Shutting down is yeah. kind of one of the busiest airports in the world, really. Um, uh, you know, in response to this perceived kind of encroaching, um, you know, authoritarian rule from 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 China. And it's hard to know what's going to happen there. Like either it's kind of like my brother lives in Hong Kong and, and my sister-in-law and they just had a, a new baby this week, actually. And, um, you know, they're kind of at the thing they're talking about is either it's going to get much worse or it'll kind of fade away but I think everybody in Hong Kong is very worried about the the level of um, uh, police violence that's happening and you know it's it's you know ordinarily such a calm society that for people to be out on the streets like this is is really you know it's really really important and they're fighting for democracy Um, but you know you just worry so much about um, you know these videos of of tanks lining up in Shenzhen and Mm. um, you know the force of the Chinese army is so huge and the propaganda that's coming out like manipulated news videos about uh, protesters and calling them terrorists and all this kind of stuff so um, it's really quite scary and um, but you know Right on. I like, can't see it fading away. Like even yesterday, all the hospital workers came out with their eyes covered with bandages after one of them was one of the protesters was shot in the eye. So it feels like it's it's traveling through all the different kind of sectors of society rather than fading out. So yeah, and it's also telling a story like a broader story about like contemporary protest, like all of the you know stuff around lasers being used to kind mm-hmm. of disrupt facial recognition cameras and. Um, I saw these amazing videos of, of protesters basically using traffic cones uh, over a tear gas canisters that they basically wanted police fire a tear gas canister they put a traffic cone on top of it then pour water through the top of the traffic cone and it diffuses the whole thing I mean if, I mean, there's certainly really good tips and also <laughs> the way they have all the sign language for whoever's at the front of the protest to whatever they need to be brought to the front Right. they have all this it's like it's very yeah. they're a team um, and uh, closer to home, but also internationally, Sinead Burke on the cover of Vogue's September issue. Wow. 
amazing. It's just phenomenal to see the work she's done and in terms of making disability so visible and uh, fair play to her. And now to Donegal. Andrea, hit me with some Donegal facts, please. Population 159,152. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm excited. Uh, the facts are the, my highlight. I learned so much about our country. Used to be known as Tyr Connell back in the day. And this is my favourite bit. It was ruled by the O'Donnell dynasty. That's just because you love Dynasty. I know. In my mind, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, imagine the outfits and like the dramas (laughs) and like Joan Collins waltzing into Donegal. (laughs) You can't have her. She's mine. Tro's cocktail. (laughs) Did it go like that? Until it probably was like that until the flight of the Earls when they all took off into exile. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. Let's make a front of a. DVD cover of that. Uh, Killy Beggs is the largest fishing port in the whole of Ireland, um, whilst the smallest one is also in Donegal as well. So go on the fishing. Malin Point is the most northerly point of our whole island, and Star Wars was filmed there. Not all the like far away bits, all the close ups. So it's actually like more in- intimate, shall we say? Mm. Intimate Star Wars. Um, oh my God. Amazing Grace. The song, the hymn, whatever, was written by John Newton, who found refuge at Loch Swilly. And he was a person who was a, a people trafficker and he was out. Slave owner or something, was he? Yeah. Slave trafficker. Yeah. Right. And he was uh, out at sea and it was all really hurdy-gurdy and splashy. And he was like, please, God, please save me. I repent everything. If you forgive me, um, I will... I'll give up all my sins and I will become a good person. And then he found refuge at Loxwilly, which was really calm and he couldn't get over how calm it was. And then he went in and he wrote Amazing Grace. And did he leave his white supremacist uh, past behind him? Then? He did. He actually became a, a sound person. OK, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Apparently. I wasn't there. Um, Donegal is home to musical stars of Clannet. Daniel O'Donnell, wee boy, Rory Gallagher, and Ireland's best-selling solo artist, Enya. That is just, like, it's just phenomenal what she's achieved in such a, a, such a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not boisterous way. Yeah, she's very low-key. Unassuming, that's the word. Uh, She's won six World Music Awards, four Grammys, nominated for an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and she's never toured. Mm. And she used to be in Clannet, that's her family band. And here is a fact. Shout out to Adam. He is, my friend Adam, obsessed with Enya. And he, like, loves all her music and was, like, his auntie wrote music. So they're all in this kind of buzz. And then he got post to his house one day addressed to Enya. Turns out his bedroom in his house used to be Enya's bedroom. Oh, my God. (laughs) Twist. I did not see that coming at the end of that story. She used to live in his house. He was literally like, are you absolutely joking? And then he had to deliver the post to Enya. Wow. Yeah. Um, Leo's Tavern up in Donegal, um... The Clonard Dad's pub is really great and it has all of the Clonard like golden discs and Anya's stuff all around the pub. It's really great. I love, love Anya as well. I and I think her. she's one of it's funny, she's kind of had more of a renaissance recently, like people are beginning to appreciate her more and you know, sometimes you hear 
people talk about her in interviews like Nicki Minaj is a massive Enya fan yeah. and um, James Kavanagh James Kavanagh Nicki Minaj <laughs> James Kavanagh um, Katy Perry and um, Marina Dumandis as well like they're all cite her as a big influence so it's funny how when like she doesn't get necessarily get the the due that she deserves as a musician like her music completely stands up and if you like mm. would there be Lord or Lana Del Rey or people making this kind of ethereal music without Enya but I it also not. goes to show you don't have to be a shouty showy bitch either you can do, do good work and the good work will speak for itself peeps real talk um, get off Instagram um, no need for thirst also speaking of no need for thirst is the wonderful Rosnella um, which is really good for surfing and it's kind of Bundoran's quieter sister Bundoran hosts sea uh, sessions um, but Eski Britain is uh, part of the Britain clan who are have all the surfing shenanigans in Rasanella and she was the first woman ever to surf in Iran which I thought was yeah she's a boss and actually this week um, there's a really big article in the New York Times about surfing um, that's titled Chasing Waves on Ireland's Wild Atlantic Way if you want to look up that and it's really interesting stuff about um, Donegal surfing up there so uh, check that out I'm like obsessed um, I actually went surfing in Rasanella I was absolutely shit but it's such a beautiful place and you can get gorgeous seafood in the surrounding places. Surprise, surprise, at the coast, isn't it? Weird. (laughs) Um, And Wednesday of this week, which will be whenever you hear it, uh, is Love Donegal Day. So if you are a supporter of Donegal, you can do a few hashtags of Love Donegal and get the get the love for Donegal going, even if it's past the day. It's an initiative supported by Daniela Magella already. Packy Bonner's supported. Sarah Jessica Parker... Another Donegal resident. Uh, Game of Thrones actor Art Parkinson and former Irish rugby player Nora Stapleton. So I think it's, get it out there, hashtag love Donegal or hashtag Nunongolabu. Was that the right <laughs> pronunciation? Wow, I could have sworn you were from Guidor. Guess what also, I did a shout out. I'm taking up Irish lessons. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and there's this thing called pop up whale talk that do it in bars. Yeah. Amazing. Brill, they're deadly. So our county rep this week from Donegal is somebody who, if they weren't the county rep, I would be in a lot of trouble, probably. Maybe not. Maybe shouldn't care. Um, so my girlfriend, Sarah, who is a writer, is from um, Falcara, northwest Donegal. She is a Donegal obsessive. Her name is Sarah Francis. And um, so she's going to be your county rep this week. And I've learned an awful lot about Donegal through Sarah. Um and I suppose I'll probably spend more time there than any other county because um, her folks are still up there and go up an awful lot. And I think for me, my Donegal <laughs> awakening and awareness is, first of all, how stunningly beautiful it is. Obviously, I'd been in Donegal before we were going out or whatever, but it is such a spectacularly mm. beautiful county and it's giant as well. But the part that makes it so gorgeous is that it is underdeveloped. And obviously that's a kind of bittersweet thing because, you know, Donegal, people always call it the forgotten county. And I think even though we've we've talked a good bit through this um, podcast series around oftentimes people from different counties, like Amy O'Connor was saying about Waterford, like, oh, you know, Waterford feels maligned or forgotten. I don't think that um, feeling of feeling of being forgotten um, is as prevalent anywhere else in Ireland than it is in Donegal and I think that there's a lot of opposition to mainstream politics because of that All you have to look at is the train to Donegal or lack thereof Exactly it's impossible to get to and I you know it is that bit like you know obviously it's, it's further away from Dublin for example and 
but because of that, I know this sounds really, you know, the most fucking dumb thing ever. But like, because of that, there is this unspoiled nature to it. There is a wildness to it that is not commercialized, that isn't overrun with tourists. And it just offers a, a really the real Ireland for me, you know, like spectacular, wild, very magical. But it's also very easy for you to say that where you yeah. have your Dublin life. And I, totally. But I think what I found from looking at the Donegal facts was that what, there was Donegal people writing about the beauty and the um, wild uh, mountains that, that are like bigger than the cliffs of Moher and Clare. The sea cliffs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, they their comments were that there was no uh, guest centre and they were like, and that's a good thing for them. And it, you get to have an explore it on your own terms rather than have signposts and where they tell you you should go. So from someone who lives there, it was an interesting kind of take on it. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the economics of Donegal in a second, in a little bit with Declan Meehan and also the prospect of would universal basic income work for somewhere like Donegal, given its high unemployment and high outward migration rates and the lack of opportunities compared to other counties for young people, for example. So we are going to be talking about that. But before we do, our county rep this week from all the way from Northwest Donegal. The love of your life, Sarah Francis. (laughs) Donegal is the best and most beautiful and most forgotten county in Ireland. And it is magic. It's home to the most beautiful landing strip in the world, Carrick Finn Airport, and our beaches are the best Ireland has, stretching from Inishowen to Bundoran, where the surf is always up, and where you'll find nearby League, the highest sea cliffs in Europe. Along the coast is Ardra, where the McGill Summer School went from being the voice of our times to behind the times. That's the thing about Donegal, it can sometimes let you down. It's a county that will most times say no. But when a school can go from 800 to 400 students in a generation, no is the least of what it should be saying. You'll find Donegal in Perth and Vancouver, Toronto and London and always in Glasgow. Our ties to Scotland are so close from migrating for taddy hooking and labouring that a Scottish accent is no stranger in a classroom in Dunloe or Dunfanaghy. Donegal is majesty. There's been a king on Torrey Island going back to ancient times. One of Ireland's three patron saints, Colum Kill, was born in Garden great-great-grandson of the 5th century High King Nile of the Nine Hostages. And it was from Rathmullen that the last earls of the old Gaelic order sailed, ending centuries of Gaelic aristocracy. Donegal is mythology. Torrey was once home to Balor Nasula Niva, Balor of the Evil Eye, a supernatural Formorian warrior that battled the Tua de Danon, many of whom made their homes in the Bluestack Mountains and in, in the south and in the Derive Mountains in the north. The highest peak is the volcano-shaped Eregal, and at its feet, in Dunluwy, Lou, the god of light, was slain in the fabled Poison Glen. Donegal is history. Wrecks from the Spanish Armada lie off our coasts beside tanks and sunken ships from the First and Second World War. It was in Loxwilly that Wolftone was captured by the British and taken ashore to Letterkenny, ending the 1798 rebellion. Donegal is music. From Gidor, it has given us the mystical sounds of Clannad and Enya. And from Kinkashla, it has anointed us with our own special emissary, Daniel O'Donnell. We've taken the Sam Maguire home twice, no small feat for a forgotten county. And Donegal gave Ireland the hands of God. It was our own Packy Bonner that saved that famous penalty that sent us to the World Cup quarterfinals in Italian 90. The only Irish goalkeeper that can match him is another Donegal native, Shea Given. Donegal has Highland Radio, Ireland's number one local radio station, 
and the John McGinley bus, a company so revered that word of a new fleet will make the front pages of the Donegal News, it should be no surprise that we love that bus. Donegal has no trains. Donegal is where a school dance is a hop and a school leavers dance is a prom. We are fueled by our own special elixir, the sweet and sticky McDade's football special. We can also tell you some soil from Torrey will protect your home from rats. Donegal's homes are as famous as his hills, and you'll be welcome anywhere from Granyanala to Glenties, from Carrigart to Burton Port, from Ballyshannon to Ballybuffet. Donegal is the best and most beautiful and most forgotten county, and you should go there. You should go there to experience its people, its history, its majesty, mythology and music. If you do, you will fall in love with its heartbreaking beauty and in return it will bless you with some of its magic. Donegal is more than enough. So that was our county rep there, Sarah Francis. And more about Donegal in terms of its economics, which brings us to our question this week of should Donegal have universal basic income? In an article for Irish Central last year, the journalist Cairo Doherty wrote, we in Donegal would find ourselves politically decapitated as two centuries of developing trade and commerce links were suddenly cut, collateral damage in a wider political redistricting because of our isolation I've always thought of County Donegal as Ireland's orphan county or as a sort of phantom limb a land surrendered figuratively and literally by both the Republic and Northern Ireland that feeling of being forgotten and orphaned and detached is really very real I think in Donegal the the 2016 census showed that the unemployment rate in Donegal was 18% Earlier this year, uh, Joe McHugh uh, trumpeted the positive news of the unemployment rate in Donegal dropping by 43% between January 2012 and January 2018. But it was dropping from a height. The results of the 2011 census showed that the unemployment rate in Donegal at that time was 26.2%, which is comparable to Greece in the run up to its bailout referendum in 2015. Um, The county's population decreased by 1.5% between 2011 and 2016. Now, that doesn't sound more, that may sound small, but it is very, quite rare, really, for populations to be decreasing in that way. The only other um, counties that experienced an average decline in population were Mayo, 0.1%, and Sligo, 0.2%. So that's 1.5%. Uh, that Donegal's population declined between 2011 and 2016, which is seriously significant. In 2016, the vacancy rate of houses in Donegal was 27.4%, with nearly 23,000 out of 84,000 houses uninhabited. So at a time of a housing crisis in Ireland, I mean, obviously one of the aspects of the housing crisis in Ireland is that we built houses in the wrong place, um, the wrong places, but I mean, the housing prices in Donegal are so low, and you know, there's an Instagram account. Sorry to jut into the serious one. thing called Cheap Irish Houses that everyone's obsessed with, and it does a new cheap house all the time in places like Donegal. Oh, I did not know that. I'm going Side to check bar. that out. So, um, you know, as we're going to be seeing increased outward migration from Dublin, particularly of people who are on lower incomes or working in the arts. Um, for example, or creative industries, you know, Donegal actually has the potential to turn some of its economic, um, you know, negative aspects into perhaps something a bit more positive because there's huge scope for 
um, ha- you know, kind of building a society that is maybe less rooted in the kind of rat race type scenario and, and real economic pressures that we have elsewhere in the country, um, along with, you know, the quality of life being, you know. You can take it at a slower pace and yeah. not have to turn out something that is commercially viable and has to make money. You can be actually making things that mean something. Yeah, that's easy to put our spin on it, yeah. I suppose, kind of down here in terms of like a, a positive way. But surely there's kind of areas for potential there. Obviously, Donegal is a massively creative place, amazing music, amazing art. Um, You know, it it just has this its own kind of vibe that's kind of mad and brilliant. But of course, we have Brexit coming down the line and Donegal will potentially be the county most impacted by this. You know, this is a county that has a border with Tyrone, Derry and Fermanagh, a small little border with Leitrim. And there are huge warnings about the impact that Brexit is going to have on the fishing industry, for example. So it is really going to be up against it. Um, it's going, you know, and, and we're going to have to start considering Donegal in, in, a, in a different way, in an all-Ireland way, where places that have felt forgotten um, don't have that feeling and that reality compounded by Brexit coming down the line. It's very hard, I suppose, to do that where you're kind of saying it's so wonderful that it's it's not being optimised and doesn't have visitor centres. But then at the same time, you're like, we need to optimise it and get more up there. And yeah, I suppose I'm saying I think it's more about like examining. Like it's about opportunities, not necessarily optimization, mm. you know, and if there are opportunities for people to live cheaper in bigger spaces maybe um, with a universal basic income maybe with a universal basic income you know that that could provide for something a bit more than the very very hyper capitalist way that we're yeah that we're that we're dealing with um in in Dublin specifically you were talking about a recording studio that I yeah love. like I mean at Attica Studios up there Tommy McLaughlin um has a beautiful recording studio up there and of course you know I know a, few different musicians who've moved up there in recent years um, you know the scale of the landscape and uh, what that gives you creatively in mm-hmm. terms of you know headspace and, and um, being able to reflect and have you know lit- literal quiet areas you know it is huge um, So could Donegal perhaps become the cultural hub that we need in Ireland that's being erased by all the commercial um, push that's being pushed on everyone else everywhere I mean I genuinely think that there is potential um, there although that's you know not everybody can be you know making tunes in the, in the middle of nowhere no, poetry you know? But I mean, I, I, to talk about this more, um, we're going to have a chat with Declan Meehan. You might remember him from Don't Stop Repealing last year. <laughs> um, and he also ran, in the meantime, he ran as a local election candidate there as an independent candidate um, and very unluckily didn't get elected. He's a board member of Donegal Youth Service. He's the chair of Shout Out. He's deputy director of Car Friend Northern Ireland. Um, and Declan um, lives up in uh, Rathmullen in Donegal. And he has a really good overview kind of, of, of what things are like for folks up there beyond my, uh, me and Andrew's romanticizing r- r- romanticized version of the potential of, of a place that... Um, WB8 sitting there penning and beautiful Yeah, novel. exactly. So um, let's chat to Declan about the economic realities of Donegal. So Declan, what would you say is the main economic theme or situation in Donegal right now? When you talk about the economy in Donegal, it's one of neglect 
I mean, you have nearly 100 years of nationhood since the partition of Ireland. Donegal is as neglected, as poorly represented and as underinvested in as it has ever been in the past 100 years. There's been very little improvement in that. I think that that shows in terms of you know, comparative statistics when you look at employment and uh, unemployment and youth unemployment. But also when you look at government investment in large-scale infrastructural projects, I mean, Donegal is still uh, the, you know, one of the only counties that doesn't have one mile of motorway nor railway. It is a very small airport that is over an hour away from the main economic hub in the county. You have these kind of, um, I suppose, the lack of investment and where investment has been made, it's been a local political decision-making process that has, I suppose, resulted in a poor outcome for the whole economy of Donegal. And I think the airport is probably one of the best examples of that. So I think there is certainly a real feeling of neglect constantly in Donegal. And I think if you look at the statistics, that's kind of proven to be the case, where it is, I suppose, a county with an awful lot of potential um, that hasn't been realised due to lack of investment. What is the impact of the outward migration, particularly youth migration from Donegal, do you think? Because like you're a young guy and you're li- you live up in Rathmullen, don't you? Yeah, that's right. And I suppose I was very lucky to be able to move back because an awful lot of my friends uh, who would have went away to college and university to study after the leaving cert or after that again, um, you know, haven't been in a position to be able to come back. So that, I suppose, the, the lack of opportunity the lack of jobs in Donegal obviously results in that outward migration, whether that's to the south of the country, you know, to Dublin or, you know, all too often that's actually abroad in places like Perth, Auckland, Calgary, New York, whatever. So I think that the impact on that is obviously that you have, I suppose, a disproportionately older population in general. Um, I think that you have a real sense of stagnation and in some uh, parts, I suppose, regression, particularly in rural communities um, and the smaller towns and villages. So that has an impact on the local economy because you don't have that those younger families, those younger individuals coming in uh, and contributing to the local economies, particularly outside the main urban centres in the county. And you also have, I suppose, the kind of... I, the cultural impact of that, where you have a, a politically more conservative population as a result of that huge outward migration of particularly young people from the county. Mm. The romantic uh, version of that, let's say for someone like me, a dub, is that when I go up to Donegal, there is a sense that it is much less less commercialised, uh, much wilder, it's more beautiful because it hasn't had the development or the over-touristification of somewhere. But that's no use, I suppose, to people living there. But could that be a virtue? I think it is a virtue. And I think that you can see some uh, development and progression in that area where that sort of sense of wildness and remoteness has been used as an asset rather than a burden for the county in terms of how it's marketed across Ireland and also abroad to try and attract more visitors um, to the county, which in turn would obviously boost the local economy. Um, It is a real asset, I think. I think Donegal in general, no matter how healthy an economy would be there, it'll always have that feeling of being rather wild and remote a huge county, it's not hugely densely populated, it's got some of the most beautiful spots, if not the most beautiful spots in the whole country 
Um, and I think that to market that and to kind of realise the potential that Donegal has as a real tourist destination would have a massively positive impact on the local economy and on the people who live here. Again, it's about, I think, at its most basic, it's about allowing young people in particular, you know, you're talking between the age of 18 and 40 even, to be allowed to return to Donegal or to stay in Donegal and to live their lives there and to live prosperous lives there, not just, you know, merely survive there. I think that in the past few decades when we've had, the past two decades in particular, where we've had, you know, the, since the Good Friday Agreement and open borders with Northern Ireland, there was a real potential there to develop that those cross-border links and Donegal's kind of unique unique place as somewhere that is in the very most, you know, north-westerly most point, but very well linked to Northern Ireland, that that also wasn't properly realised. And again, now, you know, we could potentially be losing that window of opportunity that was there previously. When people talk about the impact that Brexit is going to have on a place like Donegal, um, which Donegal is probably the most perilous part of the country, um, because of of um, how it, it borders the the six counties, what are people talking about in terms of the perceived impact? Obviously, so much stuff is still up in the air. But I've been reading a lot about um, the potential impact on fishing, for example. Yeah, I mean, fishing is a huge uh, one and a huge area of concern in Donegal. I mean, we would have seen uh, um, a huge shrinking, if you like, of the fishing industry in general over the past few years as the um, fishing territories of Donegal have become more competitive with trawlers from uh, elsewhere in the European Union. So you see that those kind of arrangements that we've had between the Republic of Ireland and the UK, even in territorial waters that wouldn't be open to EU trawlers uh, closer to shore, that they're coming under scrutiny and potentially, you know, that there may be a cessation of those agreements. So Loch Foyle is one of the most kind of, I suppose, the, the most dramatic example where there has never been an agreed upon border down Loch Foyle, which borders both, you know, County Derry and the Inishone Peninsula. So that's something that is going to impact negatively on the local fishing industry, which, as I say, has been impacted negatively already over the past few decades. The other issues that are obviously coming up around Brexit are that an awful lot of people that live in Donegal work in Northern Ireland. I'm one of those people. I work between Derry and Belfast. I commute in every single day. So I cross the border uh, twice a day without even thinking of it. If there's any sort of disruption to that, it'll have a huge economic impact on the county, um, not just because of trade uh, you know, hear so much of uh, on the news, um, but also on how people live their lives on a very much uh, daily basis, uh, hopping the border very freely and very regularly. When we're this episode is about universal basic income, and we're kind of thinking of you know hypothetical radical solutions to the unique um, challenges that Donegal faces in Ireland, but perhaps they mightn't be so unique in a global context when we look at more isolated places. Um, within countries. Do you think something like that, like do, making radical decisions like that would be helpful, even if they may not seem very realistic? I mean, anything that brings more money to Donegal is always going to be helpful for the county. As I say, it's been so underinvested in and I suppose neglected over the past 100 years that anything is going to help. Whether or not, you know, I don't know enough about universal basic income in particular to say whether 
whether that would work or not. But I think it's interesting that, you know, we often have to think of these hypothetical sort of scenarios to problem solve something like Donegal as a whole region, because we've actually seen that the basics haven't even been explored yet. So there's been no investment in infrastructure in Donegal, linking it back to the rest of the Republic of Ireland in the past number of decades. We have uh, a promised dual carriageway since the St. Andrews Agreement in 2007. You know, we're on 12 years later and assault has actually turned on that, linking, uh, I suppose, the M1 via Monaghan and up into Tyrone, into Donegal. So, you know, talking about things like universal basic income are very interesting, but again, that's so frustrating because we haven't even explored the basics and doing the basics properly um, and using tax revenue and using government investment to actually boost the economy and connect it properly to the rest of the country. Why is that? Because there are plenty of rural or remote areas in Ireland that seem better serviced. Like what is it like leaving aside the geographical location, which obviously is a huge factor and leaving aside the dismantling of, let's say, um, you know, the train network, which also happened in, 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 you know, around Cavan and and, and so on and counties in Ulster. Like, is it a failure of political representation um, because Donegal has a really great manufacturing industry. It has, you know, a vast coastline uh, for, you know, fishing and, and seafood and so on. Like, it, it, what what is the key failure that you can identify that has seen this neglect? I think the best, or the, I suppose the go-to um, reason for that is exactly as you're saying, it is political representation. We've seen, I suppose, uh, political representation alternate between Fianna Fáil and Finnegale-led governments over the past 100 years that actually delivered very, very little in terms of significant investment for Donegal. So it has to be seen in that context that the personalities and the individuals that we're sending to Dáil Éireann, particularly from those parties, are not able to get significant investment over the line for the county. Is that because they're cozying up and playing politics within the political party for their own personal gain? I would venture a guess that that is exactly the case and that they don't actually have the interests at heart passionately enough to be able to deliver that for the county. So I would point to political representation as one of the main reasons that we haven't had the same sort of investment in infrastructure as, say, the west of Kerry, um, that you know has done very well out of investment over the past number of decades through a variety of different uh, political representations, both independent and pol- political party-wise. So yeah, I think that that's kind of the the go-to certainly where to start is you know i think donegal is in dire need of stronger political representation in all Aaron and you know if that is to exist within the mainstream political parties then those individuals and personalities need to change their tactics in order to deliver for their constituents thanks so much uh, for for chatting Declan. that's been really informative great thank you Una. I'm interrupting this podcast to say that <laughs> off mic, producer Andrew just said, and I quote, Orinoco flow is a load of bollocks. To which I say, <laughs> So good. You know, he said, but better than that one. Only time. Who can say what? I'm moving to Tony Gold to become a singer. That's it. <laughs> Only time. 
interestingly, only time has doubled the number of streams pretty much uh, than Orinoco Flow. Because it's does. an absolute tune, a chicken roll. So my uh, number one act that I would love to see live the most is Anya. But I want she to see her. I know, but I want to see her in a very specific setting. So I want her. I want like 120 in piece Adam's house. Or, no, no. <laughs> I want like 120 piece orchestra. I want Gregorian choir, like the whole thing. You know the way Kate Bush did those. Um, yeah, they did were those one-off shows. I'd want that for any. Like, do you know you, who holds the power to make stuff happen? You yourself. Do it. Right. Okay. You so can make it happen. I am going to call Anya now. <laughs> uh, no, um, I don't know Anya. Who knows Anya? Like Adam. Okay. <laughs> we're going to call Andrea's friend Adam and we're going to get Anya back on tour and we're going to She doesn't get, want to. We're going to get her She's 10%. dead right. She is living her best life. Why would she bother? Okay, moving from Anya to the question of the week, which is should Donegal have universal basic income? Uh, is this a random question? No, not really. Basically, what is universal basic income? It's one of these ideas that has kind of gained traction in recent years as a potential answer to um, the vast civil <laughs> unrest and inequality we're facing into with automation um, and so on. And basically what it is, is you pay people money. So do you pay everyone money or just people who are unemployed or is it across the board? So there's loads of different types of uh, universal basic income or basic income models. So yeah. for some people, it's like, OK, this is a way to replace the welfare system. Mm-hmm. For other people, it's basic income that's means tested based on people who are unemployed or have lower incomes. Yeah. Um, for other ways of doing it, it's kind of like a negative income tax model where instead of paying tax to government, the government you, you like basically gives you money. Or then, Sounds way better. Sounds way better. <laughs> or there's... The kind of broader, like universal basic income thing, where you you take a number, um, which you obviously come up with, kind of measuring different kind of factors in, in society and um, cost of living and all that, and you just pay that to everyone. So, why is this kind of you know keeps popping up as an idea? Um, well, basically, with you know when people are kind of looking at what a post-capitalist society might look like, or particularly tied to automation. Um, And so we're kind of facing into um, what, you know, some people are saying it's going to be an absolute kind of automation apocalypse in terms of um, employment. And maybe they're not wrong. One of the biggest or most high profile people talking about this right now is Andrew Yang, who's running for the Democratic presidential nomination. He's running on a platform of um, universal basic income and also talks a lot about the projected impact of automation. And he often uses this kind of parable about truck drivers um, that there's 3.5 million uh, truck drivers in America um, most of the, those jobs are going to be automated uh, in, in the future if you even kind of think about the benefits of automating truck driving it's like safety you know you never have stopped driving it's like more fuel efficient and the industry there has basically calculated that automating uh, trucking in the US would save 168 billion dollars a year saving it for who though is the whole for the point, companies but is the whole point of why we created jobs so people could live rather than like the whole point of a society and an economy and an economy should fuel the society and not the other way around yeah but i mean that doesn't Happen. happen in America, particularly yeah. like the ultimate capitalist model. Um, so, you know, let's take truck drive, truck driving. OK, so you can save $170 billion, um, could potentially wipe out 3.5 million driver jobs and also 5 million service jobs. So like people working in truck stops and motels and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
you know, ha- what is going to happen to a particular slice of working class or to pe- people in kind of service industry jobs when automation comes through? If you look at what's happening in the UK with regards to retail and all this retail apocalypse and all that kind of stuff because of people shopping online, 85,000 jobs were lost in retail in the UK in 2018. Um, 150,000 if you include the hospitality sector. The number of job losses predicted for the UK high street for 2019 is 175,000. So we're going to be facing into a situation where capitalism will kind of be more broken than it already is because not only are you going to have people's uh, jobs, particularly in service, retail, more kind of menial jobs wiped out through automation, people aren't going to have money to buy the things that capitalism survives on as a consumer culture. So how do you create a safety net that moves beyond welfare um, to actually allow people to not completely, you know, mass civil unrest basically is one of the things that potentially is coming down the line massive inequality, poverty, terrible quality of life. La, la, la. You just have to look at the rust belt of what's happened there. Yeah. And this is essentially what is going to be reproduced and look what happened there. Yeah. Hello, in, Trump. Yeah. So basically post-industrial society and then post-capitalist um, potentially. So what, what, how does that function as inequality grows? Um, so, you know, who kind of gets behind this idea? What I find really interesting about universal basic income is that it kind of unites people from disparate political philosophies. So very suspiciously, a lot of the like big tech (laughs) head honchos are really into this idea. And it's like, okay, well, do they know really more than the average punter of the impact automation is going to have an AI and in terms of taking away um, jobs from humans? or and are they scared of civil unrest? I mean, this is why all these guys are buying up like half of New Zealand and like being preppers and all that kind of stuff um, with regards to climate crisis and general civil unrest. Or are they just to go to live in a bunker in New Zealand? Yeah, basically. Wow. Um, so do they see it maybe as a safety net to keep society together? Because if people have some kind of basic income, then they won't revolt. Um, you know, so it has these kind of libertarian, uh, weird connotations as well, which is strange because basically those philosophies are like people should be able to do whatever the fuck they want and government needs to get out of the way. A lot of conservative economists are kind of coming around to it. And then you have like a lot of utopian, more left wing stuff who are like, you know, we should just get rid of jobs are to fund a society yeah. like me. <laughs> and um, basically that, that we should just be paying people um Yeah, so it's really weird. We're going to be talking to um, a guy who spearheaded uh, one of the most high profile um, experiments on this in Finland. And Finland is pretty interesting when it comes to doing these kind of radical things. Um, And so this is the the guy, Ali Kangas, who basically uh, built this uh, universal basic income experiment for Finland. So we're delighted to have him on the podcast. But why Donegal? So like Donegal has a lot of issues that could be solved by a more generous um, welfare scenario, I suppose. So if you have like, you know, a lot of outward migration, if you have high unemployment, if you have like fewer opportunities, fewer young people staying in particular space, well, then wouldn't universal basic income make sense for one part of Ireland? Because then it would also potentially um, allow for people to migrate to that county mm-hmm. and create um, fill uh, the houses fill the houses and all that kind of stuff so it's just a hypothetical we're throwing out there for Donegal and also to discuss this issue my 
plan for funding universal basic income in Donegal. Go. Listen up, Pascal. Pascal. <laughs> if you take the 14 billion euro Apple tax. Okay. And there's you, no, there's no thing about that at all. It's, no, you just, yeah, take, just, it. just take it. It's just in, well, it's ours and it's in an account. Oh yeah, I know. I can't believe they haven't taken it yet. So you could pay every 18 to 29 year old in Donegal. Is that ageist? No, well, this is 15,000 people. So okay. it's like a good sample size. So every 18 to 29 year old in Donegal, you could pay them 2,000 euros a month at a cost of 30 million a year for 466 years with right. the Apple tax. Do you think they might be dead by then? <laughs> <laughs> I think this, this is flawed. I think you need to relook at your plan. I'm into it, but maybe relook at the figures. <laughs> That's why you haven't been hired by Pascal, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. <laughs> So we're joined now by Ali Kangas, who is the director of the Equal Society Programme and Strategic Research Academy of Finland and Professor of Practice, Department of Social Research at the University of Turku. And Ali has also been called one of the masterminds behind Finland's Universal Basic Income Research Experiment, which got an awful lot of international intelligence. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast, Ali. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for calling me. When did you first start studying Universal Basic Income and why? Uh, everything started uh, in autumn 2015 when the Finnish government uh, decided to have a basic income experiment and then they uh, announced a competition and uh, my team happened to win the competition and then uh, everything began there so that uh, I had no idea to try to study basic income but then uh, suddenly, when that possibility popped up, I used the possibility, and then here we are. And what, why did the Finnish government decide to start this experiment? There were a couple of reasons. One reason uh, that motivated the government was uh, the uh, change of employment and uh, production mode, so that when uh, we are going to have digital economy, and then the question is, if those uh, social security programs that were planned during the industrial area, if they are proper to uh, respond all those challenges we will have in the new mode of production. And then the second uh, issue that was at stake was that if basic income is good for employment and especially for for those people who are self-employed and who are freelancers and who are micro-entrepreneurs. So that those things were behind the planning. And um, tell me about how you, your team designed the trial. How was it going to work? The research group uh, consisted of seven persons and uh, we did lots of micro-simulations uh, in the first place, um, in the first phase, so that to get uh, some idea what are the um, national economic consequences if basic income is this or that, if basic income is 600 euros or 500 euros or 700 euros or, euros or 1,000 or 1,500 euros, and, uh, who will win, who will lose, and how much it will, it will cost. Thereafter, we decided uh, the level, and the level uh, was to be 560 euros. 
there is uh, about the net level or minimum uh, unemployment benefit that's paid uh, out in this country. So basically you decided that it would be 560 euro a month would be the what your model of the universal basic income? Yeah, that was uh, somehow a baseline or minimum uh, level of benefit that's paid in this con- country. And then we decided that, okay, uh, that's uh, also the minimum that we will use so that it's a, a kind of partial basic income experiment, not the proper basic income experiment that is replacing all existing social security systems. Right. So then in a pra- in practical terms, how did the experiment progress? How many people were involved being paid this uh, basic income? There are 2,000 unemployed persons who were uh, randomly selected uh, from the registers of social insurance institutions. That was my employer, 10. And uh, 10, it's a nationwide random uh, experimentation. And we have 2,000 people in the uh, treatment group. And 10, we have the rest of uh, unemployed persons getting bene- benefits from from social insurance institutions as a control group. So that we have, and 10, uh, the idea is that uh, if in the end of the experiment, we will find differences uh, in those two groups. In that case, the differences are caused by the uh, treatment. Right. So you 2,000 people who were already unemployed being paid this basic income. And how did the trial progress? What kind of feedback or measurements were you uh, monitoring during the project? Uh, project uh, is or went very well in that sense that uh, the ICT technology and ICT platform worked very well. And then uh, we were collecting and are still collecting data uh, on the people so that uh, we have registered data and registers in this country, they are pretty good so that we can find out which kind of employment contracts they have, how many, uh, how much they have earned, which kind of earnings they have had uh, if they have been self-employed or, or dependent employees. Uh, how many hours they have been working, if they have been full-time employees or part-time employees, uh, which kind of medicine they are eating, which kind of uh, diagnosis they are suffering from, etc., etc. So that we can, from the registers, by combining different registers, get a huge amount of information. And then uh, we conducted uh, surveys, telephone surveys, uh, targeted to the uh, treatment group and control group, and we ask the same questions about uh, level of income satisfaction with life and uh, which kind of uh, employment contracts they have had and which kind of or, uh, voluntary work they have done, etc., etc. And finally, uh, we are now uh, carrying out face-to-face interviews and asking people the, uh, how they felt. So through those uh, interviews and surveys, we will try to dig in the heads of the people and minds and to get a a kind of phenomenological aspect uh, uh, of the experiments. Because on the basis of registers, we only get what has happened, but we don't necessarily know why people have behaved as they have behaved. And therefore, 
uh, I think that it's very useful to have interviews and uh, also surveys. Mm. And so for how long were people being paid um, the, the basic income? It was uh, an experiment that lasted two years. So that uh, the problem is that uh, the two years period is a too short period to get uh, rather reliable uh, results because uh, people know that uh, after two years this funny thing is over and they don't uh, do big decisions, but they do decisions on employment and that kind of issues. And uh, the reason why we had only 2,000 persons and why it was only two two years, uh, the duration of the experiment was that the government (coughs) gave us only 20 million euros for the experiment and it wasn't possible to get more people and it wasn't possible to have a longer experiment uh, because the government wanted to get results as soon as possible. And we had elections uh, this spring and the uh, former government wanted to have results uh, and the experiment ended before the new government uh, will be or take take power so that there was that kind of political restrictions and also uh, restrictions uh, from the funding side and and, uh, from the budget that we had. Right. And what are some of the outcomes or results that you're seeing? Was the experiment successful? What interesting um, outcomes emerged when the the payments themselves were finished and you're gathering the data and interviews with people? Uh, The experiment was successful in many, many different ways. First of all, it was possible to carry it out because uh, it was obligatory experiment and uh, it was uh, unclear for us uh, in the very beginning and uh, if the constitutional committee or the parliament will accept this kind of human experiment that they accepted and now the door is open for this kind of experiment and experimenting with uh, with, uh, human people and uh, the next step is to make a better experiment and go through that open door. So in that sense, it's all uh, very successful. Then, of course, uh, if the results are good or bad, depends if a person is in favor or against basic income. The uh, results that we have now on the basis of registers, they are for the first year. And uh, the whole uh, experimental period will be analyzed uh, on the basis of registers in the beginning of next year because registers are lagging behind and we will get in the end of this year information or registers ready for 2018. So that what I'm now saying, it's only for the uh, first year, 2017. Uh, the registers show that uh, there were no the major impact or significant impact uh, on employment. The uh, persons who were getting basic income, they were uh, neither more employed nor less employed than those uh, who were in the control group. So that uh, they were plus minus result. And then if somebody is against basic income, 
she will say that the TUC basic income is not good for employment. That if somebody is in favor of basic income, she will say that the TUC basic income is not making uh, people more lazy uh, than the present system, so that the uh, basic income is a good system. So that it depends. Uh, and then what, uh, uh, as regards results from surveys, it uh, appears to be so that those people who got basic income and responded to our surveys, they were happier, they were more satisfied with their lives, and uh, they were uh, more satisfied also with their income, and they were more uh, they trusted more uh, in social security system and even they trusted more politicians. And uh, my explanation is that uh, when they were getting basic income, they knew that uh, in the beginning of every month uh, they will get that 560 euros, whereas in the uh, present system or those who were in the control group, they didn't know that for sure because they had to meet uh, employment office officer, they had to meet social worker, they had to meet this and that, and meet more bureaucracy. And also the experiences of bureaucracy were uh, much smaller uh, among the uh, basic income group than the, among the control group. So that the, those were the main, main results that we have in our hands just now. Right, that's so interesting that people would feel if they're getting money, kind of no questions asked and don't have to jump through the bureaucratic stages of, of um, welfare, let's say, that they then trust the political system or the state more. Yeah, and uh, I think that there's a kind of rational, rationality in this, in that sense that uh, if... Uh, person knows that we will get for sure what uh, they have promised to me or what the bureaucrats have promised to me, I will get it. Uh, whereas in the case that uh, I'm dependent totally on the decision of that bureaucrat and uh, I don't know exactly if I will get anything, uh, if, ha if I have behaved properly to get it or not, then uh, there's a kind of not that kind of uh, trust for the situation so that I can be skeptical against the bureaucracy and the bureaucrat, whereas in the basic income situation, and I know that, okay, I will get it. I can trust on the system. Mm. And then there's a kind of spillover effect that when I trust in the social security system, then I trust on the politicians who have made the social security system. And uh, I also trust on my, my fellow citizens uh, in that, that sense. And uh, so that there's a kind of a spillover, mm. a spillover effect. Before, um, before we finish up, Oli, what is it about Finland that looks for these radical solutions for big problems you know, another aspect um, thing that has happened in Finnish society is the approach to homelessness, for example, which has been to give homeless people housing. Um, wh what is it about Finnish society that looks for these radical solutions, do you think? Uh, I think that uh, lots of explanations uh, when it comes to that uh, housing issue or homelessness uh, issue. Uh, to 
decisions that were taken then to reduce homelessness uh, came through the whole society so that the decisions were made at the central governmental level and then uh, local municipal levels and also uh, lots of third sector voluntary organizations were involved in so that it was a coordinated actions for uh, every actor uh, that, uh, that uh, are in our society. And then when it comes to those uh, radical other things like basic income experiment, the British government uh, introduced something that's called experimental culture. And uh, this basic income is just one experiment that the government wants, uh, wants to have, or wanted to have. Uh, there are lots of other experiments, and the government is uh, saying that we must have those experiments uh, to have knowledge-based decision-making or evidence-based uh, decision-making. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Ollie, and I look forward to um, learning about more of that data from the Basic Income Experiment next year. I really appreciate you um, coming on the podcast today. It's been fascinating. Yeah, my pleasure. Andrea, what needs to get in the sea this week? Well, we're going to have a double bill this week as it happens because there's, there's two things that need to get in the sea. First, the stupid construction company who are building, guess what? A hotel. Oh, surprise, surprise. Um, down where the squirrel, the red squirrel mural installation piece was. On uh, Tara Street. Tara Street. Yeah, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I'm not into facts. Um not, I am into facts, I'm not into the nitty gritty. Um, so they agreed with the documentary f- makers who filmed the installation of it that they would wait a week for it to come down so they could film the deinstallation. Is that what the word is? Deinstall? Uh, yeah, the deinstall. So. Um, but then the next day they ripped it down unceremoniously, just did it. This really upset me. I know sometimes it's kind of <laughs> weird that like smaller, well, things that kind of seem to be smaller are more upsetting but I just feel like it's emblematic of the shit that's happening in Dublin right now of culture literally being torn down and I really felt for the filmmakers I was speaking to one of them and like they had changed their flights to get to Dublin to to film it and you know they just put a lot of work into it and it's just kind of upsetting the kind of heartlessness of it Um, Johnny Ronan is the builder there who's building what is going to be Dublin's tallest building 22 stories uh, office block and hotel and there's a bunch of different international hotel there's companies a lot of big that. scraps going on about getting bigger in Dublin getting higher isn't there yeah he's been having down, having but that even issue like fundamentally um, between journalists and people about how we as a city we need to go higher and people are like no we don't yes we do I think there's par- absolutely parts of the city where there should be like higher density buildings definitely but you know uh, pulling down um when you've agreed to leave it for a week. I know, like, even if, even, like, like pulling it down in the first instance is kind of gross, but if there was actually, you know, the, 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 I guess the, the filmmakers trusted that, the, that they would be able to film it and they weren't, so get in the sea. Also, to get in the sea, now, I have a, I have a history of why I need to get in the sea as well. Once I used to have to work on this music channel and I had to get a press release signed off by Louis Walsh, I know. And he came up to me and just poked my tits and was like, are they real? I was like, are you for real? And I, I oh like, my I was, God. yeah, he's like, are they real? I was like, Pfft. anyway, I hate him. Uh, but call he, it out, Andrea, call yeah. it the fuck out. He 
uh, has said because Ireland's Got Talent has been axed, he came out with a statement that was like, I don't need them. They don't pay me enough. Um, he's branded Irish TV as local telly and he, like, just get in the sea, Louis. Fave bits this week. Andrea, hit me. I feel like there's going to be a disparity in cultural levels between us as usual, but I don't sure, think look. So. Okay, well, first up, I can't wait for Fast and Furious in 4DX. What? 4D? Or, oh, well, I'm going to see the Hobbs and thingy one. Oh, yeah, tonight. that's Fast and Furious. So oh, am I. In, yeah. But go in 4DX. What time is it on it? Don't know. Okay. Uh, but it is the one where, like, water goes into your shoulders and you get a shock. And imagine in Fast and Furious when they're jumping from buildings and you're on that roller coaster as your chair moves it is going to be like Fast and F- we've discovered that we've Fast discovered and Furious is so both th- of our yeah, favourite so films <laughs> <laughs> apart from Made in Manhattan like an interesting common ground for myself and Andrea is that the Fast and Furious film franchise is our favourite film franchise it's just the best and I can't wait to see it in 4DX well I was going to see it in nor- stupid old 2D no go and um, see it in so 4DX we'll see it in that, I was yeah, going well. to go to Butterworld where they put, still put butter on your popcorn the only cinema Butterworld that's what I call it it's down in like the Point Village they put the Odeon yeah <laughs> Butterworld <laughs> and they have they know so well how to do popcorn that they fill up your bag halfway put the butter on put it back in mm. and put the butter on and that's without even asking at this stage they're the best that's what's up um, also my favourite thing was No More Hotels on Saturday which was uh, the little club night dinner and a show thing myself and Dave ran you DJed that I did it was so uplifting fun joyful there was so much talent at it it was just another way to experience a night out and I just think it was like I was full of joy after it so it was fab well done and then the last thing is the Little Women trailer hook it into my veins Sir Ronan by the way getting attacked for her accent again can everyone just get the boat and leave her alone she's a national treasure and I will not hear another bad word said about her she's from New York Carlo and Dublin what do you expect her to talk like anyway she's a queen Little Women looks amazing it's got loads of feminist shenanigans going on in it I am into it Greta Gerwig's directing right one of my faves sure <laughs> Well, speaking of things on screen that are fun, my fave bit this week, one of them, one of three, is Gentleman Jack. Now, I generally hate period dramas because I just don't care. And everyone's just like faffing around at these really shit parties and like dancing and all this and like, you know, get the carriage and all this bollocks. Do not care. Give me Kamara. And muck. That's not my main problem. (laughs) Your runners would be wrecked. (laughs) But Gentleman Jack is amazing. Um, What is it? So basically it's this period drama based on the real diaries of Anne Lister. Is it a film? A TV show? I feel like we're playing charades here. (laughs) Three words. It's a TV show. Perfect. It's a TV show on BBC. It is based on the real diaries of Anne Lister, who was this absolute boss lesbian landowner in Yorkshire who just ran right around the place and she was a total, like... Um, she was just an absolute boss and obviously I love it and she wears a top hat and this really long black blazer and takes no shit every day so she's brilliant and there's loads of like scandals super juicy you'd like it like Dynasty yes 
but in Halifax. Oh, cool. <laughs> There's a lot of dynasty going on today and I am living for it. Another thing that I love that um, my friend Dorje recommended to me, which you can see it on YouTube, it's a BBC documentary called Everybody in the Place, an Incomplete History of Britain, 1984 to 1992. And it's based, it's a documentary that takes the format of a school lesson by this guy so it's like set in this classroom um, and it's about the impact of uh, house music and rave culture in on British history and it just is really really like you know very clarifying in terms of the kind of cycle around um, raves the miners strike um, Thatcherism protest and uh, basically tried shutting down kind of people's fun and how people were gathering. It That's is, what is happening here. Yeah, it's really, really fantastic, especially at this moment. You're right um, in Ireland and in this weird kind of neoliberal moment that we're living in. It's really, really Where instructive can we find to watch. It? You can watch, if you just search for it on YouTube, Everybody in the Place, An Incomplete History of Britain, 1984. Everybody into the place. Let's go. Yes, that. And my other fave bit is a book that I just uh, finished last week, I think. Um, it's kind of a, quite a long, long-ish essay, which means a short book. It's by uh, Lucia Osborne Crowley. It's called I Choose Elena. It is an amazing essay about um, sexual trauma, which is not very cheery, but how she talks about kind of shame and getting through um, really difficult times and um, becoming the the young woman she is is brilliant. So if you want to read some really kind of honest, great writing, I choose Elena. It is out next month. Now, this weekend, this Saturday at four p.m. Sensation. We will be recording a very special episode of United Ireland Tuna Chicken Roll live at Love Sensation in Kilmainham and Dublin Eight. Woo! We are sweating for it. We are getting. Some of our favourite, let's be honest, drag queens, (laughs) Um, some of our favourite talent from the uh, festival to tell us their favourite tuna chicken roll, why it's their favourite tuna chicken roll, what it means to them. Then we're going to listen to it. It's going to be fab. And so our guests are Panty. Yay. Veda. Yay. Davina. Yay. So you have three queens talking about three. Five queens. Five, well, and me and Andrea, five queens, uh, talking about the tuna chicken rolls at four o'clock in a tent somewhere. The Queer Quarter. Oh, the Queer Quarter at Love Sensation. Please come down and uh, we'll have a chat about all of their tuna chicken rolls. And if you want to bring some of your uh, favourite merchandise, we'll sign it for you. Your favourite United Ireland merchandise that you made yourself. <laughs> because, we- <laughs> But also, we do printing made us some gorgeous stickers, laptop stickers um, for United Ireland. So we'll be giving them out as well. And we also are shipping our rewards with actual merchandise. <laughs> if you uh, have um, been signing up to Patreon, which brings us to Patreon. Woo! If you go to unitedireland.com forward slash Patreon, you can support us. You get rewards, bonus content. We've and- been, do- well... We've been doing quite well with our bonus content. Yes, we have. And and um, and there's loads of like, we give like tickets to things and all that kind of crack. So please support us. And thank you so much to everyone who does. I know we've been sluggish on shipping the rewards. We're actually really sorry, genuinely. It's, things have been quite hectic, but we are um, getting the designs finalized this week and then yeah. they're going to be shipped. And we love you. And thank you so, so much for supporting us. We really appreciate and it. And anyway, what's a better reward than hearing our voice? Um, the actual rewards that they were promised when they signed up for okay, Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Support from Susie Bennett. Crystal Clear gave us his 
Tuna Chicken Roll. For our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. And you can find links to all our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And if you have enjoyed listening to us, let us know. We've had a few messages and DMs from people with subjects they'd like us to cover. So thank you for that. We'll definitely be looking at those for the future. Um, But for now, to bring us out of the week is our tuna chicken roll. And this week's tuna chicken roll has kind of a little suggestion of Enya in some of her songs. When you go to her Spotify, you'll hear the rest of them. But the one we've chosen is The Tomb. And this is from Lux Alma. She is the brains behind the musical direction of Riot, the amazing show from This Is Pop Baby. And now she is going out on her own as Lux Alma. And you can see her at festivals. She's had another love story this weekend. Um, and she's all over the place and she's fab. So enjoy. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United, United Ireland. Ireland. And that was Donegal. He waits above the bay. Below the surface there lies his dream. He'll live beyond his years. They'll remember him. Oh, they will. But at what cost? Once in eternity. 